uh, for uh, the uh, service tomorrow. Hebrews 10, 32 through 39, uh, the Bible says there, But call to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions, partly while ye were made a gazing stock, but by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while ye became companions of them that were so used. For ye had compassion of me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that, uh, he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are uh, not, but we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. The title of the Bible study this evening is this, The Cost of Christianity. Let's pray together. Lord, would you help us as we endeavor to understand uh, what you have for us? Lord, help me not to preach this text with any pretext. Uh, but, Lord, to preach it exactly the way it is, to be true to the Word. Uh, Lord, not to read into things that aren't there. But, Lord, as we uh, uh, seek to understand it, help us to understand it with a heart that is open, a heart that is uh, clear. Help us to push away the clutter of the day, of the week, of ongoing hurts and problems in our lives and distractions. Lord, help us not even to focus on things that are benign and, uh, Lord, shopping lists and to-do lists and things we need to get done. But, Help us, Lord, to really understand the Word, and Lord, help us to grow from it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. The cost of Christianity, anything worth having should cost you something. Anything worth having should cost you something. True Christianity is not convenient, and it's not meant to be comfortable. True Christianity is not meant to be comfortable. Um... As we were turning this room around, we had a lot of people asking, well, how comfortable will the new seating be? Nothing wrong with that, okay? Uh, But you understand that there are churches in Africa where they sit under a tree, right? And they don't have a building. There are churches in parts of this world where they they have to sneak into each other's homes to have a Bible study under arrest, under the thought of being arrested, and killed. Now, I'm grateful for the religious freedom we have here. I don't want it to go away. I hope we have it for the rest of my life and the rest of my children and grandchildren's life. I hope it's around for a long, 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 long time. And I hope that while we have this freedom of religion, that uh, we're able to be fired up for the Lord. I believe that White Oak Baptist Church, the spiritual temperature is higher with the average person that goes here than many of the other churches in this country. Uh, but I have to tell you that the greatest enemy to Christianity in the U.S. of A. in 2020 is this idea of living a convenient lifestyle and living a comfortable lifestyle. We love convenience. We love it. If you don't believe me, then uh, see how long it takes you to buy a new cell phone when the one you have starts slowing down. You love convenience. Not only do you like that, but you... Uh, you like to be able to go to the store and buy a gallon of milk that's cold. You don't want to have to go get a cow and 
milk it and, and pasteurize it. You want what's convenient, and I want what's convenient. I, I know this, that if I've ordered my meal at McDonald's and it's taking them more than five minutes to get it to me, I start to tap my foot and my heart starts to pick up at speed and I can feel blood beginning to rush to my hands and I want to know what's taking so long. I love convenience and so do you. Not only do I love convenience, but I love comfortable. Um, uh, when my mattress is getting lumpy and uh, springs are starting to stick me in the hip. My Amazon search history would show I'm looking for mattresses online. Uh, when uh, the chair in my living room is not all that comfortable, uh, one solution would be to lose a little bit of weight. The other solution would be to buy a more comfortable chair. And uh, guess which one I'd pick. Um, uh, but uh, comfortable. We love things to be comfortable. But my friend, please hear me loud and clear. True Christianity is not meant to be convenient or comfortable. That's not what Christianity is. is. Um, the cost of Christianity. We sow on earth and we are to reap in heaven. We sow on earth and we are to reap in heaven. Part of the problem with folks today is they want to see an immediate, and I mean immediate, return on their investment. Pastor, I gave up working the bus route because I just wasn't seeing any fruit from my labor. Pastor, I gave up teaching that life group because no one, uh, we just weren't growing the way I thought it was. Uh, uh, pastor, I, I quit uh, at the church down the road. I was pastoring because I went at it for four or five years and no one really seemed to care. Pastor this, uh, pastor that, and, 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 and I, I sowed, but I didn't see a harvest. My friend, we are to sow on earth, and we may see some reaping on earth, but we are to reap in heaven. We are to reap in heaven. The true harvest for our efforts will see them in heaven at the judgment seat of Christ. There will be a great fire. God will take our labor. He'll put them in the fire. That, done, uh, that was sinful or out of even the things we did that were right out of the wrong motives will burn up and we'll be left with gold, silver, and precious stones, 1 Corinthians tells us. And we're to labor not for what we can get on earth. We're to labor for what we can get in heaven. We are to endure hardships on earth, knowing that we have our payday coming in heaven. And we cannot forget this. Now, uh, part of the introduction here, I want you to understand uh, who the book of Hebrews was written to. It was written to two groups of Jewish folk. The first group it was written to were those considering Christianity, but had not yet converted or not yet bought in. So you had, and, and these, we looked at this group, uh, the last two Bible studies out of Hebrews 10, those that had a knowledge of the truth, but had not received it in their heart. They knew it in their head. They had not received it in their heart. They were looking at the facts. They were considering it up against Judaism and trying to decide, do we leave Judaism and convert to Christianity, or do we just hold on to what our our forefathers have, have the religion our forefathers have given us? The second group that the book of Hebrews was written to were those who had truly gotten saved. They'd embraced Christianity, but this group was dealing with the temptation to fall back into the practices of Judaism. So if I could help put it maybe in terms that we understand, think of about someone who is just a little frustrated with the Catholic Church and they decide for two months straight to visit 
White Oak Baptist Church, and there you ask them uh, on any given day uh, of the week what they are, even while they're visiting here, and they'll tell you, I'm Catholic, uh, but I'm attending currently a Baptist church. Are they saved? No. Two months in, have they gotten a head knowledge of the gospel? Yes. But have they gotten saved? No. Okay. The second group of people, so that, again, the parallel with, with Judaism, the second group of people would be folk, uh, someone who comes and attends out of the Catholic church, and they, they truly do put their faith in Christ and they believe and maybe they come for six months or a year but their heart misses the ceremonialism of the Catholic Church so they're tempted to go back and be involved in that and so that would be a comparison that helps us to understand uh, please understand that both of these groups are represented in Hebrews 10 look look back with me at Hebrews chapter 10 and look at verse 22 look here it says let us draw near. This, uh, here, the author is speaking to those who have chosen Christ. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Uh, look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith. Verse 24. Let us consider. Verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Look down at verse number 29. Of how much more, of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he, notice the change in pronoun there, shall he of, not us, not we, but he. And so um, uh, you read on down the rest of the verse, there shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified in the holy thing and hath done despite under the spirit of grace. So those who trample on the blood of Christ, this is a different crowd than those who are walking with the author and are truly saved. Here now, uh, we're given a strong warning from 26 to 31 about apostasy, and then you see a shift back to those who are saved. Look at verse 32. Look at verse 32. But look at look at the pronoun uh, change here. But call to remembrance the former days in which after ye were illuminated, ye endured a fight of affliction. The first word of verse 32 is a word that provides Contrast. It is a conjunction. The word but there is a conjunction. And so it's talking about uh, uh, apostates falling into the hands of an angry God or the living God, a vengeful God. And then verse 32, but, so we're shifting here, call to remembrance the former days in which after ye were illuminated. On down verse 33 and verse 34 talks about the great affliction and reproaches suffered. An unknown dreamer shared this experience. I saw in a dream that I was in the celestial city, uh, though when and how I got there, I could not tell. I was one of a great multitude, which no man could number from all countries and peoples and times and ages. Somehow I found that the saints who stood next to me had been in heaven for more than 1860 years. Who are you? I said to him. We both spoke the same language of heavenly Canaan so that I understood him and he me. I, said he, was a Roman Christian. I lived in the days of the Apostle Paul. I was one of those who died in Nero's persecution. I was covered with pitch and fastened to a stake and set on fire to light up Nero's garden. How awful, I exclaimed. No, he said. I was glad to do something for Jesus. He died on the cross for me. The man on the other side then spoke, I have been in heaven only a few hundred years. I came from an island in the South Seas, Eramonga. John Williams, a missionary, came and told me about Jesus, and I too learned to love him. 
My fellow countrymen killed the missionary, and they caught and bound me. I was beaten until I fainted, and they thought I was dead. But I revived. The next day they knocked me on the head, cooked, and ate me. How terrible, I said. No, he answered, I was glad to die as a Christian. You see, the missionaries had told me that Jesus was scourged and crowned with thorns for me. Then they both turned to me and said, What did you suffer for him? Or did you sell what you had for the money which sent men like John Williams to tell the heathen about Jesus? And I was speechless. And while they both were looking at me with sorrowful eyes, I awoke and it was but a dream. He said, I... I I lay on my soft bed awake for hours, thinking of the money I had wasted on my own pleasures, or my extra clothing, and costly car, and many luxuries. And I realized that I did not know what the words of Jesus meant when he said, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We have the wrong definition of Christianity in America in 2020. If our comfortable toes get stepped on, we scream and run from it. Now, I don't want to be a doomsday preacher. But I do want to just speak what I believe I see coming. I don't believe what I'm going to say is hyperbolic. I believe it is accurate. I believe, believe that if I live to be a 70 or 80 year old man, there will be a day where this church's tax exempt uh, certificate will be revoked and taxes will be heavily charged because we preach the Word of God. We will be labeled as a hate speech organization. We will not be allowed to continue to stream our services online. I believe that it could snowball, snowball in a way where even those who stand where Scripture stands, are arrested and put in jail. I believe uh, that's coming. Now, I've heard Christians say, well, surely Jesus will come back before that happens. And I would say there was a man in Africa this week who had his head chopped off as a pastor for preaching the gospel. What makes us as Americans more special than those in Africa or the Middle East or Asia who are jailed and killed regularly? God does not owe us as an Americans anything. And if men on the other side of the world, men and women on the other side of the world, can be tortured for their faith, there's nothing preventing us from being tortured for our faith. You all know the illustration of, and I, I mentioned this Sunday evening, but the, the, the frog in the pot of water that heats up slowly. You all know the illustration. You see, affliction doesn't generally come to a church quickly. Boy, the government ratchets it up slowly and slowly, and churches acquiesce, and they give in a little at a time, and you turn around, and you're not preaching the whole counsel of God, because you're trying your best to keep your doors open, and you're trying your best to have what little influence you can. Listen, we're called to preach and stand by the whole counsel of God, and let the chips fall where they may. We're told to keep the book and preach the whole thing through, regardless of what the uh, consequences are. My friend, I believe there will be a day where if you're not true with your faith, it will be revealed. Because as the persecution is ratcheted up, you're either going to become, your, your faith is either going to become more pure or you're going to be revealed as a phony and you'll just quit coming to church altogether. 
as persecution comes into your life in little ways today, how are you going to stand? You see, the Jews that Paul was writing to, and I believe it was Paul, but whoever the author of Hebrews was, uh, whoever was being written to had already faced some sort of afflictions, had already faced some sort of problems, and he's reminding them of the hardships they've already been through. Let's jump into the outline this evening and notice uh, four thoughts on this idea of the cost of Christianity. Number one, notice an enlightened salvation, an enlightened salvation. Look back at verse number 20, or rather 32 of our text. It says, But call to remembrance the former days in which after ye were illuminated. After ye were illuminated. What is salvation? It is an illumination. It is an enlightenment. It is having the light bulb come on over your head and then a light bulb turn on in your heart. I got to tell you, uh, one of my favorite, favorite things about being a preacher or even being a Christian is when I'm talking to someone who is not saved, who's not born again, and I sit down across from them and I explain to them the gospel and they're just not getting it. And then all of a sudden, boy, a light bulb clicks and you see it come on in their eye. Oh, I get it now. And then it goes from a light bulb clicking on over their head to them putting their faith and trust in Christ and the light bulb coming on in their heart. You know what the light bulb in your heart is? It's the Holy Spirit of God. And we have a choice. We can either clean up the vase that is our life, uh, sin, so that light can shine bright, or we can continue to live in sin and be secret service Christians that hide that light under a bushel. And enlightened salvation, number two, notice, in earthly suffering. In earthly suffering. Look at verse number 32 with me again. It says, but call to remembrance the former days in which after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions, partly whilst ye were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while ye were, uh, uh, whilst ye became companions of them that were so used, for ye had compassion of me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourself that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Notice letter A, afflictions. Afflictions. Uh, this cost them Personally, again, verse 32, but call to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions, partially while you were made a gazing stock. You were publicly embarrassed, both by reproaches, there's that word again, afflictions and afflictions, and partly while you became companions of them that were so used. Paul said here that it has cost you something to be a Christian. It has cost you something. You have been afflicted. Some of these folks had lost their properties. Some of these folks, no doubt, had been jailed. Some of these folks had had their reputations in, in the town drugged through the mud, and they'd been lied about and smeared and, uh, uh, and, and exposed uh, for things that weren't even true. And uh, they were afflicted. Serving Jesus, living for Jesus, had cost them greatly. And you know what Paul said, or the author of Hebrews says, you endured it. You endured it. Hey, don't give up now. Don't give up now. You've been persecuted. Don't give up now. Second Timothy 3.12 is a verse many of us are familiar with. Uh, 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 here Paul tells Timothy uh, th- that all those that shall live godly in Christ Jesus 
shall suffer persecution. He didn't say might. He said shall. Now, let me just uh, be clear on this because I've, I've heard people misuse this verse. And I've seen people who are uh, just belligerent and nasty with their faith uh, heap persecution on themselves. And, and then they turn around and say, well, I'm suffering persecution. And really, it's a martyr complex. It's a victim Hood complex. Uh, let me word it this way. If you go into New York City during a gay pride parade and you hold up a sign that says homosexuals are going to hell, you don't get to say, well, I've been persecuted for Jesus. You know what I'd say to you? You're, you're just not very smart. People, people at the gay pride parade in New York, you know what they need? They, if you're going to go, they need you to go show them the love of Jesus, not the hate of the devil. And so you be careful about that. Um, uh, now, is there persecution for your faith? Oh, sure. Sure. Um, listen, I have worked plenty of secular jobs in my adult life, and I've been made fun of and mocked and belittled. Can I tell you, though, that's really the worst I've ever faced? In the United States of America in 2020, if you really are living for Christ and you are kind in your approach, firm but kind, firm but kind, what you'll face is a little bit of ribbing and poking and mocking. Generally speaking, that's about as far as it's going to go. Now, as our country becomes more hostile to Christianity, if you're not willing and able to handle a little bit of ribbing and mocking and poking of your faith, do you think you're really going to be able to handle when a man st- stands in the back of our church with a gun and he's part of some sort of U.S. militia and says, if you're not really a Christian, leave? You really think you're going to be able to handle that? You really think that when uh, they, they banned Bibles or Bible speech or stand against homosexuality and label it as uh, hate speech, do you really believe that if you can't handle a little bit of ribbing and poking at, at, at work, that you're going to be able to ha- stay the course and be a part of it? And what about one day when they disband churches and they take away the freedom of religion and now you have to go be part of an underground church? If you're not able to stand for Christ at work uh, where you just get and picked on a little bit, my friend, you won't be anywhere near one of those underground churches. It begins today where the little bit of persecution you face, you stand up for what's right. Uh, Really, it can be put this way. Who are you trying to impress? Who are you trying to impress? Are you trying to impress the Lord by the way you live your life? Or are you trying to impress a world which hates your God? That's the question. Is it about impressing a world that's long since lost its way? Or is it about impressing God by the way we live our life? You say, well, I can't impress God. Oh, yes, you can. Do you remember the man who told Jesus, the centurion that told Jesus, he said, don't even bother coming to my house. Just say the word and you'll be healed. You're too busy to to worry with me. The Bible says that the Lord marveled at his faith. He was impressed by that man. And we can live our lives in such a way where heaven looks down on us and says, that's what I'm talking about right there. Afflictions. How about associations? Let her be. Associations. Look at verse number 33 of Hebrews 10. It says, Partly whilst you were made a gazing stock, this is the afflictions, both by reproaches and afflictions. Look here. And partly whilst ye became companions of them that were so used. For ye have compassion of me and my bonds. By the way, these two verses are what convinces me that Paul probably wrote this book. And again, I haven't put a lot of emphasis on that because it doesn't really matter. Uh, But uh, whoever it was, 
was in jail a lot like Paul uh, in my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourself that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Um, part of the problem with the church of Corinth was that um, they would not associate with Paul because he was always in and out of jail. They didn't like that. They wanted the high roller preachers. They wanted the guys who um, uh, were impressive in their speech and never got in any trouble with the law. Uh, Paul was an embarrassment to the church of Corinth. It was just a total embarrassment. And, uh, and there was a falling away, a rift that had developed between Paul and the church of Corinth. Because one, Paul just told it like it was with him and they didn't like that. But two, they uh, became too uh, concerned about their outward image. Here, the Jews that uh, this letter is written to, uh, they did not care what anyone thought. They were going to minister to Paul in his suffering or the author in his suffering. They went and visited him in prison. Now, please understand uh, that this wasn't, they weren't, they weren't serving the Lord with great freedom. They were being oppressed and they would go visit whoever this was in prison or send goods to this person in prison and notes were being made about who it was that was doing this and their associations with those that were being punished was causing greater heartache and reproach on themselves. Notice below that your companion. Your companions. Um, uh, are you willing to take a stand with someone who's being persecuted for Christ? And then notice below that, your compassion. Your compassion. Last uh, Sunday morning, we looked at love is compassion. And we said that compassion is taking your hurt and putting it in my heart. Let me ask a question to you this evening. Are you willing to put someone else's hurt in your heart if it leads to additional hurt being handed directly to you? That was what happened here. Whoever this was, was suffering. And these Jews went and said, we're going to minister to you, even if it means we're putting ourselves in harm's way. Now, I, I, again, I want to emphasize that what I'm preaching this evening in great part is theory right now. It's not something that we're having to live. And we're, we're just preaching this book verse by verse, and we're trying to handle it very literally. Christian, you need to begin preparing your heart and mind to stand for Christ today when it's easy. Because it ain't always going to be easy. It ain't always going to be easy. I'm just speaking uh, bluntly as a pastor here. I watch as Christians have a hard time just showing up to church four times a week. And I wonder how in the world are they going to handle it when people are being locked up in jail for going once a week. I watch as Christians, and again, I don't know who does the giving here. So just keep that in mind. But I watch as Christians have a hard time just tithing and giving consistently. And I think, you can't part with 10%. What about when being a Christian costs you everything and drives you in the poorhouse? I watch Christians who fumble with just the concept of handing someone a gospel track because they're concerned about what that person's going to think about them and how embarrassed they're going to be. What about when your name is drugged through the mud by society because you stand with Christ? You see, if you can't serve God when it's easy, it's not always going to be this easy. We must devote ourselves today to doing what's right. And enlighten salvation and earthly suffering, Christianity costs, number three, notice, an enduring substance. 
and enduring substance. Look down with me at verse number 35. And uh, let's read down to the end of the, ch- end of the chapter. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence. Which, uh, let's back up uh, to verse 34. Uh, for ye have compa- uh, compassion to me in my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance, an enduring substance. Cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise for yet a little while, while, and he, uh, yet a little while, and he uh, that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man will draw back, uh, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who shall draw back under perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Notice below there with an enduring substance, letter A, the Christian's perspective. The Christian's perspective. Look back with me at verse number 35. There it says, Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. Cast not away your confidence. The Christian's perspective. How is it, how is it that we are uh, supposed to uh, continue to fight the good fight of faith and not throw in the towel and give up. We must keep an eternal perspective. Again, I mentioned earlier how that we're looking for this immediate uh, return on our investment. And what you'll find uh, throughout the epistles and even to the, the pastoral, the pastoral epistles and the church epistles, what you'll often find is this, you can make it, keep on going. Remember, you're not going to get rewarded here. The carrot at the end of the stick will be received when you cross the line into heaven. The truth is I'm, com- I'm commanded to give the gospel for the rest of my life. And if I don't see anyone get saved, uh, to my knowledge, it, that doesn't really matter. My reward is not necessarily seeing people get saved on earth. It is receiving a reward of faithfulness when I get to heaven. I must keep that in the forefront of my mind. That my duty as a Christian is to reap on earth, uh, or sow on earth rather, and reap in heaven. We lack perspective at times. Pliny, Roman governor in Asia Minor in the early 2nd century, was so puzzled about the Christians uh, brought before him for trial that he wrote his famous letter to the emperor Trajan asking for his advice. This was the kind of thing he found himself up against. A certain unknown Christian was brought before him and Pliny, finding little fault in him, proceeded to threaten him. I will banish thee, he said. Thou canst not, was the reply, for all the world is my father's house. Then I will slay thee, said the governor. Thou canst not, answered the Christian, for my life is hid with Christ and God. I will take away thy possessions, uh, continued Pliny. Thou canst not, for my treasure is in heaven. I will drive thee away from man, and thou shalt have no friend left, was the final threat. And the calm reply once more was, Thou canst not, for I have an unseen friend whom thou, whom thou uh, art not able to separate me. What was a poor, harassed Roman governor with all the powers of life and death, torture and the stakes at his disposal to do with people like this? The Christian's perspective. Look, we, we're, not, we're, we're, just, we're just pilgrims 
passing through. And listen, I love the United States of America. I'm a red-blooded American boy through and through. Listen, I get chills that run down my spine during God Bless America. And, and I love the national anthem when it's sung. And, and, and I love a, a, a apple pie Americana. I love all of it. And, and, and I get on my knees. I pray for our country. I weep over our country. I mean that. I mean that. I mean that. But at the end of the day, I'm a citizen of heaven before I'm a citizen of this world. And we must keep a proper perspective that God is going to reward us in heaven. We cannot cast away our confidence. Letter B. Notice the Christian's patience. The Christian's patience. Go back to Hebrews 10. Look at me at verse number 36 and 37. It says, For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. The Christian's patience. Um, I've heard Christians say, if the Lord tarry. If the Lord tarry. And I know what's meant by that. But can I tell you something? That the Lord is not doing any tarrying. What do I mean by that? God does not keep going, well, I think I'll kick it back just a little bit more. And uh, I was going to come back, but uh, no, you know what? I'm going to kick that ball uh, down the field a little bit further, and uh, I'm, I'm going to hold off. No, 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 no. Please understand that before time even begun, God had the date on the calendar circled when he was going to send Jesus back. That date's predetermined. And uh, that, that's been predetermined from eternity past and into eternity future. And uh, God already knows, really, the Lord is not tarrying. Uh, his return on our part is imminent. We don't know when it is. It could happen at any moment. It could happen during the service. It could happen tomorrow. It could happen next week, next year. If anyone tries to tell you they know when the Lord is returning, you need to turn around and go the other direction. Because they just don't know. Harold Camping uh, from Baltimore, and that's the only bad thing about Baltimore. Uh, but uh, uh, Harold Camping uh, uh, went around and, and predicting the day Jesus would come back. And what a foolish thing to do. No man knoweth the day nor the hour. God does not want us to know that. But can I tell you that God in heaven knows when it is. There's going to be a day where he says to Jesus, he says, Son, go get your children, as the song Midnight Cry words it. And he's going to come, step in the clouds, and the trumpet's going to blow, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and all of us that are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, and so will forever be with the Lord. That's going to be a, a great day. I, I, I want to tell you, I don't want to be um, uh, uh, one who threw in the towel on serving God and living in the world just because I lost my patience. The, 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 the honest fact is that Jesus may not come back until after I'm dead. But whether death takes me or the rapture takes me, I want to patiently endure, knowing that I'm going to stand in the presence of God and give an account for my life. Let her see, notice a conditional promise. A conditional promise. Look at back at uh, verse number 36. It says, for ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, after that ye have done the will of God, notice the condition here, you must do the will of God, after that ye have done the will of God, 
ye might receive the promise. What's the promise? Keep reading. For yet a little while, and uh, he that shall come uh, uh, will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, he, my, uh, uh, my soul uh, shall, not, shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them, but draw back. Uh, uh, we are not of them who draw back into perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. What is the promise? Believing to the end. What is the promise? Living by faith. What is the promise? Doing the will of the Lord. Let me give you uh, something here I found in my studies that I found to be really, really neat. That phrase there, the just shall live by faith. You find that there in verse 38. Now the just shall live by faith. The, The original or the first time we find that phrase in the Bible, the just shall live by faith, it's found in Habakkuk chapter 2. And verse number four, that phrase, the just shall live by faith, is repeated three times in the New Testament. Uh, the just shall live by faith is found in Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11, and Hebrews 10.38. Now, what I'm about to share with you just proves that man did not write the Bible, but God wrote the Bible. Check this out. The just shall live by faith is quoted first in the New Testament, Romans 1.17. And in Romans 1, the emphasis is placed on the first two words, the just. It's uh, the point of the passage is to talk about those who are just. The second time you find the phrase, the just shall live by faith, is found in Galatians 3.11. And the emphasis is put on shall live, shall live. The third time you find the phrase is here in Hebrews 10.38. And the emphasis is put on faith, by faith, by faith. In fact, it's laid out here in Hebrews 10.38. And that segues into Hebrews 11. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please him. You can't tell me that the Bible wasn't written by God. He very carefully, by three different people, had the just shall live by faith planned out and the emphasis put in three different places. What is the conditional promise? The conditional promise is this, live the will of God and live it by faith. Live the will of God and live it by faith. Now, I want to point this out from a macro standpoint. Someone pointed this out to me a long time ago, and I thought this was just fascinating. Those who make the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, do you know what they all have in common? They all have one thing in common. They all finished their course strong. Every last person. Now, there are plenty of people who had moments of faith in their life but didn't finish strong from the Old Testament that you don't find in here. Every name mentioned, to the best of our knowledge, they finished strong. They received the promise because they lived out the will of God of their life by faith. Another thing of note here is that none of the people in this passage were perfect. And all of them had lapses of judgment and lapses of faith. But you know what? Their life, the body of the work of their life, was defined by faith. Letter D, notice the cynic's perdition. The cynic's perdition. Look back at verse 38 and verse 39. And I believe what you find in verse 38 and verse 39 are two different people. And again, this is my opinion, and, and, and there's room to disagree here. Look at verse 38. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Uh, uh, I believe verse 38 uh, would be talking about uh, uh, someone who was uh, saved, 
but just was backslidden, a backslidden person. My soul shall have no pleasure in him. They're saved, and they've chosen to stop living by faith and start walking by sight. Look at verse 39. But we are not of them who draw back under perdition. And and who is this a reference to? Those who have the knowledge of the truth, but they're not living out the truth. Uh, But of them that believe to the saving of the soul. The cynic's perdition. Notice those two words, draw back. Draw back. That is a term that sailors would use to draw back one's sail. So here's really what it comes down, Christian. Uh, Please hear me out on this. Are you going to leave your sail out and push forward for the Lord? Were you going to draw back that sail and say, enough is enough. Oh, now the sound system kicked on. Enough is enough, and uh, I have done enough for the Lord, and I'm just going to kind of coast through life. That word perdition, that word perdition, uh, the root word is translated into several different things in English. One of them is waste. Waste. The cynic's waste. The waste of a life. You know, I, I watch... A lot of people, and this crushes me, this breaks my heart, but I'll watch a lot of people who I believe are saved, they just coast through life. They're living a convenient, comfortable version of Christianity. Don't let that be said about you, Christian. We're called the bear crosses. That's not an easy Christian life. And the biggest churches in America are churches who push a comfortable version of Christianity. I want us to be a church that is fired up in understanding that Christianity costs. Let's be willing to pay that cost. 